From the moon, planet Earth is a beautiful sphere of blues, greens and swirling white clouds. It is a seemingly peaceful composition that holds within it everything, quite literally everything. All the people, places and stories of our existence. How can we decipher all those experiences, all those elements that distinguish us as human beings? And how do we interpret the greatness of the natural world, the effects of climate change and, above all, how everything is interconnected? From the moon we see the cracks of modernity. And a number of people, a number of institutions, a number of processes, non-human actors are kind of growing in the cracks. Triennale Milano, Italy's foremost institution for design and contemporary culture, will be hosting its 23rd international exhibition next year in 2022. It is entitled Unknown Unknowns. And so this podcast will attempt to tackle some of these vast questions, seeking perspectives rather than answers. Our metaphorical vantage point giving us some distance and hopefully some clarity, all from the moon. Well, and probably on a physical level, what we see are areas that have been overexploited. The most of the time, they don't correspond to where actually those um, resources have been used. People keep thinking that design is cute chairs, or it is fast cars or posters. No, design is the kind of information that allows you to have a sense of what to do in the height of a pandemic. Using the tools and brains from the worlds of culture, design, science, philosophy, medicine and more besides, we'll be taking you on a journey through time, space and knowledge with me, David Pleasant. On this episode one of From the Moon, we look down onto that planet we call home. There are probably no better or certainly more poignant words to describe what we see than those of American astronomer Carl Sagan, who described what was just a pale blue dot, the Earth seen from a little further afield than the Moon, some six billion kilometres away in outer space. From this distant vantage point, the Earth might not seem of any particular interest. But for us, it's different. Consider again that dot. That's here. That's home. That's us. On it, everyone you love, everyone you know, everyone you ever heard of, every human being who ever was, lived out their lives. The aggregate of our joy and suffering, thousands of confident religions, ideologies, and economic doctrines, Every hunter and forager, every hero and coward, every creator and destroyer of civilization. Poetically, Sagan describes a world filled with violence and war, and how, from this vantage, everything is truly put into perspective. Like it or not, for the moment, the Earth is where we make our stand. It has been said that astronomy is a humbling and character-building experience. There is perhaps no better demonstration of the folly of human conceits than this distant image of our tiny world. To me, it underscores our responsibility to deal more kindly with one another and to preserve and cherish the pale blue dot, the only home we've ever known.
As beautiful as Carl Sagan's words are, those were written in 1994, and as well-intentioned they and many other voices to the same effect might be, the climate crisis is already turning into a catastrophe. Humans are at war with themselves like they always have been, and the 2020 pandemic is proof, if anywhere needed, of the force of nature. It has also highlighted the many failings of our societies. So is it time to change the record? planet Earth, or that pale blue dot, is astounding and humbling. But rather than stare and contemplate, how can we understand and act to make it better? On this first episode of From the Moon, I'm going to be speaking to a group of people, all of whom in various capacities act as curators. To curate, from the Latin cura, or to take care, is to look after culture in some way. A curator could also be interpreted as a keeper of culture quite a responsibility then, and often a politically problematic one at that. However, a curator could be a good person to help us begin to understand what we see from our position here on the moon. First up, we have Paola Antonelli, senior curator at the Museum of Modern Art in New York, where she is also R&D director. Importantly for our journey on this episode, Paola was the curator of the 22nd Triennale, held all the way back in what seems to be prehistory now, 2019. Back then, she entitled the much-acclaimed exhibition Broken Nature, Design Takes on Human Survival. A lot might have happened since 2019, but to me, Paola and her curatorial approach seem more relevant than ever. Okay. Well, if I could start. Yay! <laughs> Let's go. <laughs> nice to see you, Paula. And um, I wanted to start uh, with uh, a question that really lets you tell us a little bit about yourself. Correct me if I've got you completely wrong, but if, it seems like throughout your career, you've kind of always looked at the world in its totality. So I feel like you're quite, you're, you're, you're the, just about the, the perfect person to answer my question. You often avoid focusing on any kind of intrinsic quality uh, or characteristic of a particular design or designer. In recent exhibitions, you, you've really kind of taken on global, massive design questions. Is that about right? Can you tell me about how you've come to take this approach to uh, curating. That's about right indeed. Just like many, 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 many other people, when I was nine, I wanted to become an astronaut. So I've always looked at things from afar. And when people ask me my idea of heaven, I always think that it's almost like powers of 10. You know, that the, the Eames's video uh, that from 1968 in which you zoom in and out. So to me, heaven is curiosity satisfied. It's about having this remote control that lets you zoom in, not only in distance, but also in time. So it's this idea that you can really zoom in and out. But to make a long story short, um, it's beautiful to look at the interconnected systems that not only we have created as humans, but also that we have occupied sometimes not in a very smart way. And I like large scale. I like big systems. So you kind of, it's, it's a bit of a turnoff for you delving into the particular aspects of one element of design. Is, is that something you're not appealed by? There are many different kinds of curators, many different kinds. And uh, luckily, there are those that delve deeply into 
one topic, one designer. I am not that kind of curator. And yet, you're right, I really am not happy when I have to, and I do them because I, I must, monographic shows or monothematic shows. I feel really in my element when I can grab together many different objects and make exhibitions that are ideas supported by objects. So yes, you read me right. <laughs> Good. So that kind of leads me to my next question with this with this obvious skill that you have of looking at things globally. Can you step into our imaginary studio on the moon and we're looking down on planet Earth? What do you see from your curator's eye? Oh, you have no idea how many times I've been in that studio already in my <laughs> life. I'm so comfortable there. It's not funny. What do I see? I see uh, I see what others have seen before me. I see Earthrise, you know, the Willem Anders picture from 1968. I see the blue marble from 1970. And then I see also the pale blue dot from Voyager. I see all these pictures of the Earth as finite, as not really distant, but just in perspective, right? And I see it as vulnerable indeed, but also I see it as more readable. That's the beauty of it. When you have perspective, you can read things better. At least you can grasp them. And from the studio on the moon, I can finally see the interconnectedness of the systems, I, those that are visible and those instead that are knowable. I see how racial injustice and social disparities and economic distress are connected to environmental issues. I see geographically the hotspots and the critical um, moments in our earthly day, in our earthly life. So it's really perspective what I have from there. Next in our Luna studio, we have Stefano Boeri, architect and president of the Triennale Milano. He is also a leading voice in environmental design in Europe, having put his attention to creating better cities in his native Italy and far beyond. So we're going to step into our imaginary studio here uh, on the moon. And I just want to ask your very first impressions when we're looking down on planet Earth. How do you, as an architect and, and as an intellectual, really make sense of it? Well, I, we, I think we can never forget where James Laidlock, uh, when he was, uh, uh, well, started to, to conceptualize the idea of Gaia, no? was, he was studying, uh, he was an astrophysic, and, uh, and he was studying how to go to Mars. And uh, at a certain moment, he was, let's say, uh, conceptually, uh, turning his gaze uh, to our, uh, our planet. And uh, that uh, kind of reverse gaze was uh, uh, really the, the beginning of the Gaia uh, uh, concept. Uh, well, I believe that this uh, necessity to take a distance when you want to get closer to the scripture of, uh, of the real uh, DNA or the real soul of, uh, of, of phenomena, it's, it's always uh, absolutely, uh, uh, an, let's say, an important step for all of us. So being on the moon, for sure, what we can observe is uh, that uh, our planet has a very, very thin uh, blue uh, skin. Uh, and that very, very thin blue, uh, let's say, pellicula 
it's life. Basically, it's biodiversity. So what makes our planet totally different from the other planet is exactly this very, very, very thin uh, pellicula of life. And, uh, well, uh, it's amazing, no? So the thin blue skin, or film, that membrane for which Stefano Boeri uses the Italian word pellicola, is maybe the best place to start in understanding what we are looking at from the moon. It takes a membrane to make sense out of disorder in biology, wrote another American scientist with a gift for words, physician Lewis Thomas in 1973. He compared the membrane of the Earth to that of a single cell, protecting and sustaining in equal measure. And Thomas argued that it might deserve a bit more appreciation, saying, we should credit this membrane for what it is. For sheer size and perfection of function, it is far and away the grandest product of collaboration in all of nature. We're going to hear more from Stefano Boeri later, but now let's try and look deeper into this membrane that surrounds the Earth, and maybe what might lie underneath, figuratively at least. Andres Hackey is nominally an architect, although since starting his transdisciplinary agency Office for Political Innovation in 2003, his work as a writer and curator situated at the intersection of design, research and environmental activism gives him an intensely human perspective. So what does Andres see from the moon? First, uh... I don't think the moon and planet Earth are totally uh, detached. Uh, the control of the image of the moon, uh, the control of the image of the, the Earth from the moon, it's been a huge architectural and kind of military endeavor and a, a huge space for tensions and for uh, violences and forms of design that were really applied not only there, but beyond that, it was a mean to also organize daily life in towns, in places like uh, California, Los Angeles, Chicago, and around the world. So basically, I think that the first uh, very important view that we have is that that world, that possibility of controlling the world in a centralized way through military, through domesticity, through uh, uh, many, many different uh, political, technological, and artistic and architectural regimes is cracking. It's cracking in a clear way. From the moon, we see the cracks of modernity. We see how the earth is basically the moment that modernity, colonialism, is sinking. And a number of people, a number of institutions, a number of processes, non-human actors are kind of growing in the cracks. And this new system that is emerging is probably a new arena where many exciting things could happen, but also where new forms of inequality, new political tensions are uh, inhabiting and growing. So uh, that's the cracks that we are basically being part of and the cracks where our voice, our contribution, our action is so much needed. So that's uh, you're seeing cracks, you're seeing things falling apart. You're kind of referencing, I think, the crisis that we have seen in 2020. Did you say kind of a new new system or a new order in many ways that we're seeing maybe emerging? Or, or, yeah, or, many, or... many tensions there. Yeah, yeah, I think that this year, 2020, is shown in a very clear way how many of the main uh, ideologies and I would say techno-social systems our life has been uh, regulated by 
they clearly are failing. We saw the colonial system based on exploitation of a big part of the world to channel wealth and capacities to a tiny part of humanity as something that is really no longer uh, uh, no longer something that could even be sustained. The amount of violence that is need, needed to, to, to keep it going as much as it was deployed in the past is, is really uh, is, is really basically uh, n no longer something that not even through military forces can be sustained. I think that the, the way that the resources of the earth have been, or the basically non-human uh, presences as entities in the world have been mobilized as resources for human, that culture of exploitation, uh, it's it's really no longer possible, and we have very clear evidences of that. And here, Andres Haki helps us to explore a central theme. If we look back again to 2019, many curators around the world were attempting to broach or react to the so-called Anthropocene era, the proposition pointing to the most recent time in Earth's history when human activity started to have a significant impact on the planet's climate and ecosystems. We'll keep coming back to the philosophy and science of the Anthropocene in this series, but crucially here, Andres seems to be saying that human-to-human -human aggression has been overlooked, and the COVID-19 pandemic is highlighting this. At the same time, we see that this notion of uh, anthropocentrism, the anthropo, like Roshi Braidotti would say, of the anthropocentrism is a very tiny part of humanity. So it's also this violence of humanity to humans, to fellow humans that are also being exploited. We see that happening all around the world in many different forms of manifestation, from people dying in the ocean, in the sea, in the Mediterranean Sea, trying to escape their poverty, uh, to basically the, the way borders are being militarized progressively more and more and more and more. And this is only a tiny part of a number of crises that are manifesting throughout the world, and the virus is not really an exception on that is the result of fundamental transformation in the environment, colonizations of the environment that are then turning uh, humanity very vulnerable and vulnerable through inequality also with a very unequal distribution of vulnerability that we've seen in people uh, staying at home while other people, other fellow humans were basically accumulating a big part of the exposition to the disease, but to bring people, to bring food for those privileged that could stay, like like me, for instance, could stay at home. All this is showing uh, also the collapse of hospitals in all around Europe as a, also an evidence of the taxation system that was based on tax evasion and tax havens and, uh, and the collapse of the uh, a, a kind of system that would, was supposed to provide solidarity and it's contributing to the making of inequality. The music you're hearing is from a short film Andres made with curator Ivan Munera entitled The Transscalar Architecture of COVID-19, made in 2020 and composed by Jorge Lopez Conde, with the special contribution of Clarice Jensen and her piece Metastable from her album The Experience of Repetition as Death. We'll hear more on that in the next episode. So all this, when you put it together, you see that 
exploitation, colonization, anthropocentrism, exploitation of humans by fellow humans. Uh, it's all the, the economies of, of uh, privileged uh, tax evaders. It's all adding to a system that doesn't work anymore. And it's, yeah, not working for anyone, not even for those privileged. Architect, writer and environmental campaigner Andres Haki there starkly highlighting some of the systemic failures that he sees affecting the way we humans live on planet Earth today. So far from a peaceful vision, we are quickly discovering that the world's problems run deep. What is the role of activism and how can it make a difference? Let's go back to Paola Antonelli at MoMA. I wanted to go back to what you, you seem to focus on as a curator. There's a kind of sense of urgency in, in a lot of your projects. Um, there's, there's this kind of imperative need to investigate and, and to spread the word in many respects. And also there's this kind of sense of this catastrophe or, the, or this, uh, uh, this impending disaster in some way. And that's illustrated perfectly with your latest uh, adventure, the uh, design emergency platform, uh, which you launched with uh, writer and campaigner Alice Rawsthorne. I wanted to know how you strike that balance between giving activism and good practice a platform and also perhaps creating or contributing to some sort of fatigue that some people might have, some part of the audience, if we have had this message about climate change for decades now, and it, it says just as much about the powers that be than the audience itself, that really we're still talking about the same message. So can you tell me about that balance between the activist and what you're trying to do in a balanced way? I think that Alice will love being considered a campaigner, and indeed we are. Well, it, it, let me start with the beginning of your question and uh, the premise, the catastrophe part. Catastrophe, and I'm going to be a nagging Italian here, the actual term comes from Greek and it means like upheaval, so it's about change. It's not necessarily doom, it's change. And that's really what design is about, helping people deal with change. Change might be that we become extinct or it might just be that there's like a shortage of oil, you know, of crude oil. So design helps help, always helps us deal with change. That said, you're talking about fatigue. The environmental crisis is very real and we have to hammer in people's minds the fact that something needs to be done and that can lead to fatigue, of course. But we have ways to transform that fatigue into energy. Before I talk about design emergency, I want to go back to broken nature, the 22nd Triennale, because that was exactly about transforming the kind of self-flagellation and punishment and atonement of environmental responsibility into yet another way to take pleasure in creativity, to be able to have elegance in solving dramatic issues. It was the idea of restorative design. Restorative design really was about showing that we can be responsible, we can be savvy, we can be economical, we can be respectful towards other human beings, other species, the environment, and still maintain the kind of pleasure in creativity satisfaction in solving complicated issues that, that is at the basis of design. So it doesn't always have to be fatigue. 
it can be inspiration. And after broken nature comes Design Emergency, of course, and Design Emergency is a fantastic project that Alice and I started in April in at the height of the lockdown of the pandemic. She had already been writing in her great Instagram feed about design in a pandemic. We decided to take our power and our platforms and actually start interviewing the people that had great responses in the pandemic, great design responses. Sometimes they were professional designers. Other times they were accidental designers like anesthesiologists. But yeah, what we want to do is to show to as wide an audience as possible the power and potential of design. People keep thinking that design is cute chairs or it is fast cars or posters. No, Design is the kind of information that allows you to have a sense of what to do in the height of a pandemic. Design is a way to highlight potential paths to an actual effective distribution of vaccine. You know, it's really about power as citizens. And that's why Alice and I are such activists and passionate activists in spreading the word about design. Design curator Paola Antonelli there, and before that, architect Andres Hackey, sharing with us some of the very urgent tasks they see at hand in facing some of the world's many environmental and societal problems. So far, we're getting some very clear insights on the state of the planet from our vantage here on the moon. There's a huge amount that we can see, or at least interpret, immediately. But what of the unknown, things we can't even predict or be alarmed by? those things outside our consciousness. Unknown Unknowns is the title of the 23rd Triennale, which will take place next year. Stefano Boeri told me a little bit about how this came about and how it was mainly as a result of a dialogue with Ercilia Vaudo from the European Space Agency. Well, we were talking about uh, uh, the unknown. So let's say, well, we, we were... Just, just go back to broken nature. We did our best to move nature outside us, outside our body, outside our houses, outside our cities, and suddenly nature is back inside us in the, let's say, form of a, such a, a very small virus, but it's, it's part of nature. So, and, and that was, a, a, let's say, the, the starting point of a, a series of thoughts about uh, the idea of unknown. So, it's much bigger than what we normally imagine to, to be, the dimension, the sphere of unknowns. And as Celia was trying to say, well, we know basically on the 5% of the universe. And then we have a, a, a Pinardi, who she's studying and she's teaching oceanography in, in Bologna. And she was saying, well, we basically know on the 5% of the oceans. And then there was someone saying, well, we probably know more, more than the 5% of the, uh, of the synapses that we have in our brain. And then I was also intervening, saying, well, we basically know that the cities are occupying something which is between the 3 and 5% of the surface of the emerging land of the planet. So we started to believe, to, to think to this, uh, uh, let's say, 5 slash 95%. Of the dimension of what we know, but uh, what uh, was immediately uh, was clear for us that uh, uh, this proportion, uh, well, in a certain way, become immediately old and let's say useless if we really were considering 
the trauma that the pandemics were creating us from from a, from the term of necessity to to open a new paradigm. And uh, at that very point, we started to say, well, but probably what we don't know is much much bigger because uh, uh, if we are not isolated by nature, for instance, we have to understand that our role should become the one of a species that has to take also to consider the perspective of the other living species. You want to describe what could happen in the next future. So it's not simply 95%, it's much more. And at that very point, we started to imagine that probably the point is not to simply to talk about what we don't know, but is also to talk about what we don't know we don't know. Stefano Boeri there on the subject of Unknown Unknowns, the title of the 23rd International Exhibition at the Triennale Milano next year. Guest curator of the event will be Ercilia Vauda, who is an astrophysicist and chief diversity officer at the European Space Agency. Thank you for joining us on From the Moon. We've just heard there from Stefano Boeri, who was talking about the unknown unknowns theme for the Triennale uh, exhibition in 2022, next year. Um, He also mentioned that 95-5% ratio of what is unknown and known, as it were. Can you maybe explain that um, that percentage of of unknowns um, from the point of view of space your field and also how you uh, you went about um, explaining that through your role as curator thank you very much David is, uh, is is very nice that we start from the beginning in a way because this was really the inspiration of uh, the thematic of the unknown unknowns uh, I was, uh, at the time of the symposium, uh, talking about the universe. Uh, and uh, actually, there is something very, very beautiful uh, about the universe, is that everything we see, and when when I say we see, means that everything that gets light out uh, only counts for 5% of the mass of the stuff that is in the universe uh, as we can measure it from the gravitational push. So the gravitational push implies a 100% of mass, and what we see is only 5% of this total. So there is a 95% that we have no clue of what could be. One possibility is that about 20%, 20, 25% is dark matter, and we can see this because there is some effect on galaxies, but there is a big 75% that really we don't know what it is. And in particular, uh, it's responsible for the acceleration of the universe. And to have a universe accelerating is very uh, puzzling because actually if you have a big bang, it's like if you throw a ball in, uh, in, in the sky, and so you have one push, one forever. Accelerating means that something is pushing you all the time. And probably this dark energy that we don't know what it is, is uh, embedded in the space-time. So more we expand and more we got pushed and therefore we accelerate. So it's very uh, inspirational concept that at the same time is very mysterious, can also be quite frightening. 
but it's, uh, it's very interesting, uh, this sense of only have a grasp of a, tw- of a 5%, that is still a lot when we talk about the universe, so it's not, it's not a, little, uh, a little knowledge, it's a huge knowledge, however, uh, only takes a fraction of uh, all is uh, contained in this universe of, uh, of ours. One thing that is also very interesting and is very much relating to the unknown unknowns, uh, because we are talking about an accelerating universe, is that everything we know about ourselves, about the fact that uh, the, is uh, our solar system, uh, that uh, the sun is at the center, is not the other way around, with us at the center, that the universe is expanding and so on. We have learned this through our history, just looking at the stars, staring at the stars. But there will be one day, because the universe is accelerating and expanding in an accelerated way, there will be one day where the sky will be completely dark. Uh, Okay, the galaxy will stay the same, but let's say our neighbor's galaxies will be so far away that we will not see anything. So things that we know today, for instance, pictures of, uh, of uh, the Andromeda galaxies or all other beautiful galaxies around us will be just a dark black uh, backstage. So what we will believe at that time that there were galaxies, that there were stars. So in a way, what we know today can again be unknown in the future. Celia, you mentioned uh, exploration there and this kind of the, the way in which that might actually be changing or we should view exploration in a different way, uh, let's say, um, maybe not so focused on us and our understanding and, and our, our, our knowledge, be more imaginative, perhaps. But can you um, perhaps tell us about the practicalities of, of space exploration as it currently stands uh, with, with your, um, your, your uh, knowledge at the European Space Agency? We see at the European Space Agency once explorers, always explorers. I think, uh, again, we have this uh, uh, tension. We want to uh, reach out to something uh, uh, bigger than us. The origin of the word desire comes from the Latin desidera esse, be far from the stars. So I think we all have in us this tension to join, to go for something that is bigger than us, to go towards the stars. And uh, uh, this is something that uh, it has probably been part of our humanity uh, since the beginning. And now we see uh, that is taking a new uh, direction. Why we go to, why we explore? Explore for the sake of exploring is uh, will not, I mean, is, is something that will not be satisfying after a while. We explore because we have big questions to answer. For instance, uh, uh, this year will be a year uh, very intense with respect to activity on Mars. Many rovers and missions and uh, new countries also getting close to Mars. So there will be the first mission beyond the moon from the Chinese. Uh, there will be uh, the first mission to Mars uh, from the um, Arab, from an Arab country like the Emirates. 
so you see there is an activity and this activity is related to the fact that uh, Mars is not so far away, so six, eight months and you are there, but it's also uh, the best place for us to start understanding the origin and the distribution of life throughout the universe. Are we alone? We have seen thousands of planets orbiting other stars. There are millions of them. We know there are millions of them. We will never be able to visit them uh, with the technology that for the seeable technology. But we know that uh, uh, on Mars, there were, uh, it was a, a very similar climate that we had uh, on Earth. Mars was once full of water, was warmer, had a thicker atmosphere and was offering a potential habitable environment. So we want to know more. We want to search for life. We want to understand better also our planets and be able to protect it. It's clear that one of the aspects that is linked to exploration is really to uh, get a new narrative and a more inclusive narrative. It cannot be only, uh, as it was in the past, a, a matter of race, a matter of conquering, a matter of uh, technological push, which, are, which is a very narrow narrative and is not appealing to humanity. So... Uh, the narrative now is much larger. You you reminded me there, just as a final note, quite a lot of our guests on, on the show, and one or two women as well, have said that when, when they wanted to grow up as children, they wanted to be a, an astronaut. And I wanted to know a little bit about what got you into astrophysics as a girl. Probably like, like uh, science in general, it is a, a, an area dominated by men. So what was your particular path, just to end? Okay, first of all, let me tell you that uh, I had the privilege, uh, uh, I had two privileges actually in my childhood. The first is uh, I grew up on a small uh, town on the sea. So the, the relation with nature was very, very strong. And I think uh, uh, the relation with nature is something that uh, supports very much in young children uh, the, the, the ability and also the willingness to ask questions and strive for answers. So the other thing that I had my mother uh, that was a scientist and my mother was a chemist, uh, yes, with a degree in chemistry and biology, but she had a huge, huge passion for science and to encourage me and my brothers uh, uh, to get into science uh, since we were kids. So I have been really grew, growing up in, in an environment valuing science again as the pleasure of, of the curiosity and discover. Then when I had to decide, I, I, I mean, I could have done literature. I loved poetry, I loved literature, but I was feeling that uh, study physics had me uh, taken my center of gravity out of myself and put it in a dimension uh, distant of myself, uh, part of this uh, silent, uh, dark universe where I am nothing, but I'm still be able to understand all this. And uh, this gave me a big sense of empowerment and a big sense of freedom. That was Ercilia Vaudo, curator of the 23rd Triennale, entitled Unknown Unknowns, taking place next year. So, as Ercilia mentioned, the narrative in which we view and explore space is set to change. 
Focusing back to Earth, but still very much on this theme of narration, our next guest in our Moon studio is American curator and writer Legacy Russell. She has occupied roles at the Studio Museum Harlem, as well as the MoMA, Whitney and Brooklyn Museums. In 2012, she coined the term glitch feminism, which, as legacy has defined, embodies an error as a disruption to the gender binary. It is, she says, a resistance to the normative. So a curator's responsibility is thinking about a way not to alienate audiences or the public from its own history. Um, And it is very much so an obligation of a curator through and beyond the institution to think critically about a way of doing that responsibly. Most particularly, I do think that this comes back to the sort of wider arc of what museums intend to do um, and what those histories look like. And, you know, as a Black person and as a queer identifying person and as a female identifying person, it is very much so something that is complicated when we think about what it means to be at the intersection of those identities and working in curatorial practice, because so much of what curating is has actually been built around a certain type of um, exploitation of um, those identities. So, you know, exploitation alienation, perhaps, um, is the best way to put it. So, you know, within the arc of museums, for example, of course, so much of, um, you know, exhibition making has kind of revolved around a certain type of um, spectatorship and spectacle, um, you know, as well as exploitation of what Blackness is and as as well, you know, know, in different um, kind of intersections, um, you know, a way of of being deeply gendered, um, you know, and as well um, having a kind of complex relationship with a kind of queer selfhood, um, not seeing those things always represented nor represented with clarity within institutional spaces. So I do feel very much that it is useful to be thinking about how volatile it is to be um, working in institutional spaces, especially through and beyond this moment, but as well how that comes with so much of a responsibility and as Mm -hmm. well opportunity to continue to decolonize museum space and as well curatorial practice. Right. And that kind of leads me to my, um, I want to look at your book that came out this year, Glitch Feminism, a Manifesto. It is exactly that, a a manifesto, but it also struck me how it could, there's a kind of curatorial side to it. It's almost like an exhibition in itself somehow. And maybe that's the way that you operate, the way you you put things together as a curator and writer. But I wanted to know how the book came about. Um, it's its genesis, you know, how it began. I know it, it, it was a process over over a few years with various conversations and uh, research that you had been doing. And, and also, I wanted to kind of look at your what you see as its potential trajectory. Would you see aspiring curators, um, maybe specifically uh, women, queer people, people of colour, would you maybe envisage that they would use this book as a toolbox of sorts or is that too simplistic you know I actually don't think it's too simplistic um you know this question comes at a great moment because just this morning I started my day reading a a beautiful letter that I got in the mail from an incredible 
young artist who had decided to reach out to me, wrote me and asked for my address. And I provided my address to this young artist because, you know, I follow their work on Instagram and have, you know, seen their, their practice kind of continue to unfold over some years of time. And I received this beautiful letter. And in the letter, they spoke to me about how they did feel that this book had been a toolbox for them, um, allowed them perhaps to see themselves newly and differently, um, and that that was something that, that gave them a different type of grounding within their understanding of their own gender and their journeying within it. So, you know, I, I, it was a great way to start the day because it's a reminder of why it is that this work um, is meaningful and as well gives me, you know, the drive to kind of get out out of bed in the morning. Um, but also too, it kind of goes back to the root of, of where this research began. And it, you know, did not begin to become a book. Um, it began, you know, at home at night on the internet. And I think that that's very apt given the subject that it addresses, which, you know, looks at the ways that digital space, um, you know, is being used to collectivize and build community, but as well um, to um, engage as a, a material across the contemporary art discourse and an art historical one at that. Legacy Russell's book, Glitch Feminism, which was published in 2020 by Verso, is, as mentioned, a manifesto. But also within it are elements of the autobiographical. Its introduction charts her childhood and growing up in a New York rapidly gentrifying around her. That reality came with the parallel presence of the internet leading her to deeply examine what, to her, was an intertwined duality. The internet as a liberating space does not and should not be in conflict with notions of IRL, the acronym for In Real Life. In this way, glitch feminism has been called a manifesto for a politics of refusing the status quo. So the glitch, this technical error, and something we have learnt to ignore or moreover to fix, is something that can be embraced. In the same way as Andres Hackey spoke of the cracks in the world to be filled earlier on, Legacy sees errors and mistakes, glitches, as a way to open up more space for dialogue. The glitch becoming is a process, a consensual diaspora toward multiplicity that arms us as a tool, carries us as device, sustains us as technology, allowing us to persist, survive, and stay alive. So get glitched, become your avatar, and stay cosmic. So glitch feminism could be a new way to interpret the mesmerizing and often alienating digital overload that the world seems to be experiencing. The internet is a crazy place, but we cannot simply categorize it in its own separate sphere. Do this like this during the day, or is it strictly just at night? You're born naked and the rest is drag, you know? My hope was that there would be someone out there who would see themselves in it. And so I think it has been this kind of incredible journey and quite frankly, quite a gift 
because um, what it has meant is that, you know, through these discussions that began at such a small and intimate scale, um, that, you know, really this has been a kind of collective practice. And it's been one that has come exactly through, you know, as you said, you know, much discourse dialogue over years of time. Um, and for that has allowed me to continue to deepen in those relationships and really spend, um, you know, a lot of time thinking about how these artists as a kind of generation should be celebrated looking down at planet earth thinking about what it is um you know what is real quote unquote um is a sort of as a troubling concept when we think about the digital and as well the the ways in which we create binaries within digital thought and practice separating um, online space from what we understand as IRL or real life if only because of the fact that it suggests that everything that happens on the internet is fantasy based or actually does not have real life quote unquote consequences and, and you don't like to use, sorry to interrupt, but you, you actually kind of object to the use of IRL in real life. Yeah, yeah. So I um, err on the side in terms of my own thinking and methodology of, um, you know, thinking through the lens of digital dualism, which is a term that was coined by Nathan Jorgensen. And, you know, thinking very much so about this idea of AFK, which is away from keyboard, allows us perhaps to hold ourselves accountably um, in a different way and to see what our responsibility is to kind of um, recognizing the loop between our screens and the things happening away from our screens, that our screens actually don't um, mediate the world, but rather as well reflect the world as it currently stands. And so, um, you know, similarly to thinking about the ways in which over this past, you know, year, this incredible, you know, heartbreaking, challenging, amazing, um, you know, quite frankly, baffling um, year, that this is, has been an incredible moment to be thinking about the fact that we are occupying different types of spaces and doing those things with strategy. And that, you know, just as we are out in the street and we are protesting and we are collectivizing and we are organizing, that those same things are happening in digital space. And that actually that those two different types of spaces are in equal support of one another. And now very much so um, inextricably intertwined. Curator and author of Glitch Feminism Legacy Russell there. Back to the world of design next with rising star duo Format Fantasma, formed from Amsterdam-based Italian designers Andrea Trimarchi and Simone Farezin. Theorists and educators, they also run a commercial and increasingly successful design studio. They began, like all our guests, by looking down at planet Earth from the moon. Well, there's several things that we, that we see. I think that the first one is... Uh, design as a discipline that have been extremely important for shaping the way we we live, but also overlooking a lot of its responsibilities in terms of ecological um, the ecological implications of design. And uh, and I think that's definitely the first things we see, but also the um, transformation of the discipline in a form of styling that. Uh, is fulfilling not only uh, the necessities of users, but also um, simple their de- de- desires. And also the focus of design exclusively to the needs of um, only a few users on the planet, which are human users. While if we look at who inhabits the planet, and suddenly... As designers, we should also start thinking about 
the needs of other than human creatures? Well, and probably on a physical level, what we see are areas that have been overexploited. The most of the time, they don't correspond um, to where actually those um, resources have been used. So I can think about, you know, a certain area of like Amazon or Africa or uh, other parts that have been overused, not for the, the well-being of the person that actually live in those territory. So that's kind of an overview of what you see, what the main uh, things that jump out in terms of the state of the planet. How can you begin to grapple with those uh, from a design perspective? And, and these issues of ecology and geopolitics are very much centered in what you're doing at Forma Fantasma. Maybe can you introduce me to uh, the principles that, that you, you're trying to espouse in, in your everyday work and, and, and teaching? Yes, absolutely. Maybe we can start a bit of how we developed as a studio. Um, I think uh, when we started working since the beginning, we were seeing design as an extremely relevant discipline because it sits in the middle of a lot of other uh, aspects of life and a lot of other disciplines. And I'm thinking about economy, uh, in a way, anthropology, um, you know, social development, culture, and so on. Um, and this is what we have always been fascinated by design. Um, and at the beginning of our career, we were focusing a lot on to material explorations, uh, more on an intuitive level and material uh, experimentations. But then over the years, I think that we became much more, I would say, programmatic in our approach. And uh, especially with our latest works, such as Aura Streams, and Cambio, the exhibition at Serpentine, we have been exploring not only in which way design um, can fulfill necessities of different users, but also the infrastructure upon which design perform. And I'm referring materials extractions, distributions, uh, recycling processes, because only with the development of a more holistic perspective of the implications of design at large, we can possibly, as designers, create relevant uh, works. I think that um, basically it is, you know, it is a responsibility for designers, I think nowadays, and it's possible to avoid that, to see also the ecological implications of design and specifically of industrial design, which we acknowledge its relevance uh, but we also want to acknowledge how it contributed to creating uh, an un unlivable planet. So it is a real struggle, the one we are facing now as designers, that we also do not operate only on a... Um, actually, we do not operate on an academic level. We are a studio which is self-sufficient economically that has to make a living and also wants to face these questions. And that's, of course, a struggle, but it's also what we think makes our work relevant that it's, you know, um, it works in an in-between scenario. Yeah, and that's also what we want to do more and more, like try to to bridge, uh, you know, the more research side of our uh, practice with uh, actually the commercial one. And of course, that is like a side of our practice. But then, as you mentioned before, there is also education that for us is playing more and more an important role. We, we teach since a lot of years, uh, before in different departments, but since uh, one year we've been asked by Joseph Grimman 
of the design academy and they went to open a new design course that is called actually geodesign. And for us, the, the education is very important because it's also about uh, creating a uh, an umbrella for um, other designers that are interested in the same topics that uh, we are exploring, where they really can express uh, the, the same concern we have. If we, you're talking there about uh, research, about knowledge, about uh, expanding that knowledge of materials, of the resources that we have. How about doing R&D on the unknown and what we don't know yet or what is around the corner? How is, is that impossible by its very nature? Well, I mean, this is something that we are personally uh, exploring that other designer already explored and that we are exploring also within geodesign department. And it's, uh, which we mentioned briefly before, uh, thinking at design for other than human species to, um, you know, which is very complex. And there's also a lot of ethical questions regarding this, of course. But um, we need to, to think about our, our survival in relation to others. And if we think about the survivals of us, it means think about the survival of, of other species. And so developing also design strategies for that. So, um, is that uh, environmental infrastructure or the way that animals or organisms behave or live? I mean, give me a bit more of a, an example. I mean, there can be very practical examples we could give, but it's uh, to, at the end of the day, it goes from a very small scale. So, for instance, thinking about the relation between the countryside and the city and how, uh, for instance, a lot of species has been marginalized at the, at the border of the city or it is also about thinking about the impact of, um, for instance, sound pollutions in other species of light pollution. Um, you know, it's just about developing more sensitivity, not only for humans. It is as basic as that. And of course, it can go much more in, in depth and can be extremely expansive. Or for instance, in the third trimester at uh, uh, the department at Geodesign, uh, for instance, we, um, we will have and sci a scientist that she's a uh, conservationist and a uh, ecologist uh, by training and she will work with an architect and the students with at a specific location in the Netherlands that they call it a re rewilding area yeah. so where an area has been certain wild species has been introduced in this area and but it is an area which is generally used for um, tourism, basically. So humans are allowed in to just look around, to look at these animals. And the question here is thinking really what it means, uh, wilderness. Why is it relegated in a spot away from the city, for instance? And, and can, it be, can we think of a different interactions between humans and animals than just entertainment, for instance? So, and, and we don't have answers. You know, but these are questions that we put there in the course to find out between us, the students, and these people we invite. Andrea Trimarchi and Simone Farazin there, who together make design studio Forma Fantasma, bringing us to the end of this first episode of From the Moon. Entangled yet divided, known and unknown, we've heard very different perspectives on the blue and green planet we see before us and there'll be much more to come later in the series.
Next time on From the Moon, we'll be examining a much divided planet, looking deeper at some of those cracks and fault lines we've already heard about, and importantly, how they might be overcome. We'll be hearing from architect Amupama Kundu, Nico Diswani of the World Economic Forum, artist Candice Williams, and artistic director of the Maxi Museum in Rome, Hanru Hu. This podcast was brought to you by Triennale Milano. It was written and presented by me, David Pleasant, with production support by the Triennale Milano team. Sound editing and design was by Alex Port Felix, and the theme music was created by John Arnold of Superdrama. Hey.